Take your Bible and turn to Numbers chapter 26. Numbers chapter 26, we're going to start in verse 1, but we're going to skip around a little bit as we're covering 26 and 27 today. This is the word of the Lord. It was written for you today. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. From twenty years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar the priests spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were... I'm going to skip the entire list and jump to 51, so 45 verses or so into the future. Chapter 26, verse 51, this was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers they shall inherit." Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This was the list of the Levites according to their clans of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the clan of the Kohathites, of Merari, the clan of the Merarites. These are the clans of Levi, the clan of the Libnites, the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Mahlites, the clan of the Mushites, the clan of the Korhites. And Kohath was the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Joshebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And those listed were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward, for they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Then drew near 
the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us already in the reading of your word. Would you now speak to us in its preaching? We readily admit the preacher is weak, and we all as listeners are weak. But you have promised that where we are weak, you are strong. Would your spirit be pleased to work, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Days like today are incredibly special in the life of Christ Ridge. We receive new members, which is always a joy. We love adding to the family of God. It's always exciting. It's delightful. Some, however, don't know the story and why having 17 people join on a single Sunday is such a big deal. Just under 15 years ago, just over 15 years ago, be 15 in February, that building across the parking lot was opened. At the time, the Christ Ridge Presbyterian Church moved into it with a young pastor who honestly had no idea what he was doing, been a youth pastor for a number of years and was genuinely clueless, I think, about a lot of pastoral ministry, with a grand total of 18 members. 18. Those 18 members were coming out of a period of extreme trauma and difficulty. We had had another pastor disaster, this one far worse than the first. The pain was so real and so raw for some that it seemed overwhelming and unconquerable. I think I've told the story before, but I remember, I think it was my first Sunday here where one of the members came up to me that I, I hadn't spent that much time talking about this with, and they said, I don't know why you did this, pastor. This church is cursed. It'll never grow. The Lord will never do this. I was like, I would have been nice to know before we moved here eight months pregnant, but okay, fair enough. And then hard work. 
15 years of hard work. Year after year after year of hard work. And we've grown numerically 15 to 20% every year of those 15 years. Which is marvelous to think about. I love to think about this because this year alone, June 19th, we received 19 members. September 11th, we received 17 members, which if I have my math correct, which is questionable when I'm up front, that's 36 members, which if I understand that correctly, that was at least five years into my ministry here before we had a church that size. Five years of pastoring a church smaller than the members we've received since the first week of June. And I'm going to be honest, I think we've got a roughly 15 to 20 more waiting to join that we just can't get through quickly enough. And the reality is that there's kind of really two different perspectives on how we can approach that reality. You know, the fact that during COVID, we built a building, that's shocking. Um, it's really absolutely just astonishing. Or the fact that we're a church in Fort Mill that's built a building. I mean, in 15 years, how many churches in Fort Mill total, not, not any denomination, just total have built buildings? A church that's doubled in size since COVID started. A church that, by God's mercy, is paying off on this debt as absolutely quickly as possible. You're giving generously. And there's really two perspectives. One is we can kind of say, whew, we made it. And we can pat ourselves on the back. Good job. And we can glory in our hard work. And we can glory in our gifts. And we can glory in our goodness. And we can glory in our successes. Or we can give thanks to God for His mercy. You see, that's really, I think, the conundrum is you have a church that kind of, humanly speaking, is beating all of the odds. I think the average PCA church right now has 80% of their membership back since COVID. We're like 150% of our membership since COVID. I think when we broke ground on this building, our regular worship service was running about 70 to 73 people. I know that because we had roughly 85 chairs. It was very easy to count the empty ones. We're already running into problems here. We can't, we can't park the people. We can't, not enough seats for rear ends. And we can either take this as kind of a, an opportunity to be self-congratulatory. Look, Look around, we did it. We, the, the, we're the people that work. We're the good ones. We're the special ones. Or you can pause and contemplate for just a moment the track record of this church and say, no, actually, we're the special ones because we've messed everything up and the Lord has still been generous enough to keep us open. We can give thanks to God for his mercy. I think Numbers chapters 25 and 26 might have hopefully some very helpful thoughts for us to think as we approach the people of Israel getting ready to enter the land. This section of the scriptures are very significant because God has been promising at this point for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that they will inherit this land. This will be their blessing. 
And it would be easy for them to say, hey, man, look, we, we've been through a lot. We've had some hard times, 400 years of slavery, that's bad. We've had some amazing victories, you know, the ocean eating the largest army on earth. Miracles, you know, the angel of death defending us, amazing things. We made it. Or they can kind of contemplate the goodness of God as he prepares them for the real work to start. For the real work to start. First thing I think for us to consider as we look at this text and perhaps contemplate it in light of God's blessing, the Christridge Presbyterian Church, first and foremost is that God values faithfulness over gifting or size or money or ability or glory. God values faithfulness over gifting, size, ability, money, or glory. Chapter 26 is a bittersweet chapter because it kind of functions as a bookend to how this story has begun. The Lord has brought his people out of Egypt, and you would say this is one of the great victories in church history. The Lord is defending his people, and he's bringing them out of slavery, brings them out of the land of Egypt, he brings them out of oppression, and he brings them into his glorious blessing. But even as he is victorious to them, they managed to grasp defeat from the jaws of victory. And there's a census at the beginning, and there's a census at the end. This is the end one, preparing them to go into the land. And the interesting thing is that you would think God's brought them out of slavery. They're now able to kind of populate the way they want to be. They're able to be married the way they want to be married without the uh, Pharaoh or others oppressing them. They're able to flourish and where God has them. They have an unlimited food supply. Uh, Their resources aren't wearing out. You would think this is a nation now that has no kind of natural predators. What normally happens in an environment where there is an abundance of food, there is an abundance of blessing, and there are no natural predators? Normally, it explodes. I mean, if you're in the South, you understand that's what happened with kudzu. We brought kudzu over. People brought it over thinking, hey, this will be a great plant for erosion control. Unfortunately, there were not enough goats. It's their favorite food, that and poison ivy. There are not enough goats. And so the kudzu begins to explode and takes over entire counties of the South. Normally, you look at any ecosystem, abundance of food, Abundance of blessing, no natural predators, you expect explosion. What's happened to Israel? Well, actually, they've shrunk. Not by much, 600,000 people roughly, but not by much, but they've shrunk as a nation. They've gotten just a little bit. Which is an amazing thing to think about because they've had the opportunity at this point for four decades roughly to explode. But they haven't. A nation that at this point is carrying with them all of the wealth of Egypt, 
Remember, when God took them out, the Egyptians were so happy to get rid of them, they gave them all of their wealth. So you have a traveling nation that is one of the wealthiest nations on planet Earth that has the priesthood, that has the very presence of God, that is undefeatable in battle, that has the living and true God fighting for them, again, with an unlimited food supply, and they don't flourish. In fact, they, they move backwards. They shrink just a little bit. The census is extremely important because it highlights that fact. That it notes, and in fact, actually, there are some tribes that shrink severely. I think it's Simeon that gets ready to basically disappear from the pages of history here in just a little bit from this census. And that was the one from just the previous uh, section where Zimri, the son of Salu, was uh, going and um, marrying a Midianite woman is run through, and that's the last we really get to see uh, of this tribe flourishing. They disappear, uh, not entirely, but largely. And it's interesting, God highlights this. I, I love this. In, in verses 52 and following, well, I'm sorry, in 57 and following, out the wrong paragraph there, he goes through and lists the Levites, and what are the blessings that come from being a Levite? Who are these people, these ones that belong to the Lord? Remember, the Levites were the ones, they don't get a normal inheritance. They don't get the land because they get God himself. They live off of the income of the tabernacle, then temple. They are blessed by God. They're uh, kind of functionally what you would think of as your ministers into the New Testament. And it's interesting that when you get here, the list... Gershon, the Gershonites, Kohath, the Kohathites, Merari, Libnites, Malites, all the list. But you get to the important part, verse 59. The name of Amram's wife was Joshebed, daughter of Levi. She bore Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Well, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam in order. And to Aaron... This is where you would expect, like, hey, this is the, the group that's getting ready to go into God's promised land. This is the group that's getting ready to receive all of God's promises. This is the group, they're the most special people on the planet. These are the only nation that knows the living and true God, and how does God describe them? And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmar. And oh, by the way, Nadab and Abihu... Two of the most gifted people in that nation's history. They're born to the first high priest. They're the first group of priests ordained to the ministry of God. These are the ones that are intended to serve in the tabernacle. At the very beginning, one of these guys was set up to be the next high priest. And what happened to them? No amount of gifting. No amount of blessing. No amount of ability. No amount of power. No amount of glory. No amount of intelligence could overcome the lack of faithfulness. Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. We heard that sermon months ago. That was uh, where they probably, best guess, just got excited and weren't careful. And potentially willfully so, but I suspect probably not. Just too excited. And the Lord consumed them with fire. Oh, and then verse 62, those listed, 23,000, but different. 
And then 63 continues. These people listed, well, they're different. It's a different census, and the census is extremely important. Why? Because everyone else is dead. When they went into the land and the spies returned, they didn't believe God's word. They believed the word of the spies instead, and as a result, God killed them all. I think that's such an interesting assessment. You have the new generation census in chapter 26 and verses 63 through 65. You have the old generation's assessment, which is they all died for unfaithfulness. And the interesting thing, I, I suspect that's certainly appropriate to us, is that it's very easy to get captivated with the numbers. We count every week how many people in worship, so we know how many chairs we're running, so we know when we have to buy new ones. It's very easy for us to be captivated by the numbers, to chase some sort of magic number uh, for a successful church. When I first started pastoring, it was chasing a church that was large enough to actually support itself financially, and then to support me financially, and then to actually not worry about a car accident closing the church. It's so easy for us to kind of chase these kind of tangible, visible metrics that are easily measured and make us feel good. It's easy for us to chase the budget and to say, hey, money is the thing. This is how we evaluate a a healthy church. Our our giving's high. It means that we're a healthy church. Or it's easy for us to say, hey, look around. The, The chairs are full. Hey, go try to park if you're five minutes late. I'm so sorry if that was you today. Hey, let's look at we're a, we are a successful church because of the things we can see. And the interesting thing is what's kind of screaming in Numbers 26 is they had all of the same things that we had in some fashion, and they were a total failure because they missed the faithfulness part. They had money. They had people. They had victory in every major military conquest, every military interaction. At this point, they are quickly becoming the scariest nation on planet Earth. To the point where like, when they get ready to go start invading in just a little bit, people are going to start switching sides because they're so scared of what Israel is becoming. And interestingly, they all died because they weren't faithful. And friends, it's important that you hear this said from The pastors said from the session, said from the church, our goal as a church is to be found faithful. It's what I preached my first Sunday here. I preached the same sermon for 18 months straight from different passages. This church wins because Jesus wins. And it doesn't matter if we have 18 people or 80 people or 180 people or 800 people. You'll probably have a different pastor at that point. I won't be here, but uh, whatever. 
The numbers are, are totally insignificant in comparison to faithfulness. Are we a people that are laboring together to be obedient? Are we a people that are laboring together to fight against sin? Are we a people that are laboring together to love each other and to take care of one another? Are we a people that are laboring together to evangelize the lost, to invite other people in to become a part of the family? Are we a people that are being faithful? Now, I'm not opposed to airing our dirty laundry in the pulpit. That's never stopped me before. When we were a church of 18 that was hurting and dying, it was a church of 18 faithful. Well, almost entirely 18. A couple of discipline cases quickly proved that wrong, I guess. But that was one of the sentences that as I was saying, it was like, ah, that's not right. I got to fix that. I can't even let that one go. But a church of almost entirely faithful. It was a healthy church. It was a hurting church, but it was a healthy church. Friends, the danger for us, I'm going to be just completely honest, brutally honest, the danger for us is that we have so many blessings, and we have so many gifts, and we have so many people, and we have so many of God's good graces that we lose that like all-encompassing, burning desire fully absorbed preoccupation with being faithful. That we kind of get a little bit of like, well, we made it. I mean, it's really easy to be reliant upon the Lord when you don't have enough money to pay your bills or pay your pastor. It's really easy. It's a lot harder when we have blessings all around us. God values faithfulness over gifting. We've fallen in love in the American culture with success stories that are measured solely by worldly metrics as opposed to the success stories of people that forgive or people who are become gentle when they used to be harsh. Or people who learn to speak in a holy fashion when they've had mouths that were full of anger and hate. People who learn to be kind who never were. Friends, those are the the success stories we should be aiming for. People who have come in with sin and have had sin forgiven and change and transformation that follow. Well, and some of I'm, I'm assuming not, but it's potential that you're sitting in your chair and you're disagreeing. You're like, well, I mean, yes, but, Pastor Michael, all of these things are God's gifts, and they are God's gifts. And because we have money, because we have people, and because we have this lovely building, well, we're doing great. Yeah. God values our faithfulness. Second point, God values our faithfulness because that's what he himself is. He himself is faithful, and that's why he's calling us to live according to his image, to live according to the way that he interacts with his church, the way he interacts with his people. He's calling us to be faithful because he himself is faithful. That's kind of your second big picture thing that you see in the census here, is that God is keeping the promises that he made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. 
in Genesis chapter 26 to Isaac, in Genesis chapter 28 to Jacob. He's promised to them in chapters 12, 26, and 28 that he would give them this exact land. And then chapter 26, 1 through 51 is the list of people that are about to get it. And verses 52 through 56 are what they're supposed to do with it. And it's such an interesting kind of contrast because you have a nation that has been over, uh, overwhelmingly time and time and time and time and time again disobedient to the Lord as they've been out in the wilderness. And interestingly, God is being faithful to them and saying, you know what? I promised you and I'm still going to keep my promise. All of those blessings that I promised back then, I'm giving to you now. And in fact, they're going to be so richly given that you're going to have to figure out how to divvy them up and to give them people. So what we're going to do is divide them by tribe by tribe, and then you're going to cast lots to see which one you're going to get. So the Lord himself is sovereign over the administration of his blessings. He's being faithful to them. He's keeping his word. He's keeping his promise. He's blessing them. And of course, obviously, this sets us up for all of these promises to be even fuller fulfilled more fully fulfilled in Jesus. That he's the one that is the ultimate solution to all of the promises, even going back to Genesis 3, that God would provide a redeemer to fix sin. That he would provide an inheritance that's purchased by Christ. That he would provide a life to come that's filled with rest that is accomplished by the Lord Jesus. That all of these promises, that all of these blessings are given ultimately through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ and through Christ alone. The easy thing in a life of blessing is to be preoccupied with the blessing. And it's so easy when you have so many things in front of you that God has given, it's so easy for us to be preoccupied with the things, to let them occupy our mind and to let them occupy our time and to let them occupy our emotion and to spend all of our energy on the things. instead of the one who gives. I love that that's in verses 52 through 56, that the mechanism they even get to have their inheritance is done by lot. It's by God's providence. So that you get the Psalms that speak of, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. My inheritance is a lovely one because the Lord has kept his promise. He's taken care of me. He's been faithful. You see, I think that actually needs to be our story. It's one of the reasons why I'm not afraid to actually air our dirty laundry. Because in our inability as a church, in our multiple pastor disasters, in our mess, the Lord has been faithful. Every step of the way, he's been faithful. And every person sitting here today is a proof of that. Some original members that have been here from the very beginning. Some that came very early on. Some that joined about 30 minutes ago. 
but all of us together proclaiming, our God is faithful. And because he's faithful, I want to be faithful too. I want to be faithful too. Now, I'm going to be honest, it's very easy for us to have this conversation when life is really good. It's very easy to proclaim God's faithfulness and encourage us to uh, be obedient to that when life is great, when it's easy, when it's fairly uncomplicated, where you know that if you get here five minutes earlier, you get a parking space and somebody else has to figure it out. But this gets much more complex as life gets a bit more chaotic. That's actually where we get in chapter 27, which I love, is you have this next interaction with the daughters of uh, Zelophehad, and they've run into a very great complication. God has already given his law for how the land is to be distributed, and it's to be distributed specifically through the fathers and sons. But oh no, we have a new situation where the father's dead and there were no sons. So what do we do? What's God's plan for this one? And I love that you have these young ladies, um, some of which lovely names, some of which maybe less so. Um, Hogla, probably not a name I'd recommend naming your child, but you know what, okay, maybe you do you, I guess. These five ladies come to Moses, and they say, how God has promised, how will he be faithful to us? Now understand, their situation at this point is dire, because they don't get access to their inheritance, they don't get access to their wealth, they don't get access to their generation, to their posterity. They're asking about, how do we survive, and how do our kids survive? How do we live in the land without going destitute? How do we not kind of impoverish ourselves forever? And I love that the Lord's already teaching them, you go ask. You go ask. The Lord already knew about these ladies. He made them. He already knew about their situation. He made that. He knew their father was dead. He was the one who took him. But he's designed it so that they would ask. So they would go to the Lord and ask. I love the fact that Jesus further teaches this with how he's designed the church to operate. Luke 11, he's praying and the disciples are like, hey, can you teach us, how does prayer work? And he even goes so far as to say, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. I mean, footnote, maybe not the way you expect, it'll be given better than that. Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, I love this, the relationship that he's in. Look, our God is faithful. And because he's faithful, we ask. We go to him and we ask. I suspect that's one of the things the Lord has used to bless this church the most. Is from the very beginning, there's been a faithful prayer meeting running. 
The one line of continuity from the very beginning, aside from the three or four people in the room. The people of God here have prayed. And I would encourage you to specifically start praying. There's a number of things that we need to pray for. I would be candid. Um, We're desperately out of space for our children. We're desperately out of space for flocks. We need to knock that back wall out and add about 85 feet, maybe a bit further than that. It's about a million and a half dollars. I know I don't have that money. I know you don't have that money. But I know our God does. And so we ask. Because the thing is, we've been asking for babies, and he's given us babies. How many pregnant ladies do we have in the church right now? Praise God. And how many years have I been praying for people in their 50s and people in their 20s? Because we need to have those. And how many has God added? And how many years have we prayed for a youth group? Because we have high school kids. We have middle school kids. And now we have one. You see, the reality is our God is faithful. And so your session is asking you to pray. This is one of my favorite challenges. If you don't like my preaching, please pray. Nobody wants it to be better than me. Nobody wants it to be filled with more power than me. Nobody wants it to be more faithful than me. I mean the Lord himself, but pray. Ask God on our behalf. Ask for wisdom. If you you need friends, pray for that. Ask. If you're lonely, come talk to us. Ask. We, We need to be a body that's about having these conversations and praying together. Now, the reality is, this, I believe, is how the Lord will bless his church, and thus far, he's blessed us. Today, it's largely easy for us to see that he blesses us richly because right now, today, this morning, his blessing is easy. It feels good for many of us, not all. But the reality is this, friends, that the Lord's faithfulness to us now will take us, will take, will take us into hard times. Not if, not may, not might, will. I can stand up here today and say it's a good and easy day. The blessings are abundant. But I won't always be able to stand up here and say that. There will be days where it hurts and it's hard. In fact, actually, that's the next section in chapter 27. I I love this. The Lord is preparing to take them into the land. He's preparing to bless them. He's shown them that he's faithful by the census. He's shown them that he's faithful by how he treats the Levites. He's shown them that he's faithful by how he deals with the daughters of Zelophehad. But there's one more issue. Is that he said in order for them to go into the land... The entire generation has to be dead. And there's one guy that's not. Everybody else is gone. There's one guy that's holding up the show. There's one guy that's holding up the whole entire thing. Moses. I mean, the hero. 
The guy who the Lord's been using at this point throughout their entire history at this point to bring them out of Egypt. He's he's the one constant. He's the one guy who has, apart from one day, hasn't even lost his temper. He's been the one steady and true thing in God's uh, care for them. And he's part of the problem. And you have to think, Numbers chapter 27, verses 12 through the end, is a terrifying paragraph for the people of God. Because everything for them has been God's blessing through Moses. And here the Lord is reminding that it's time for Moses to die. Because they cannot experience the fullness of God's faithfulness until they enter into those new hard times. Now, the reality of the matter is that some of us in this room already understand that the Lord is going to take us into hard times. And some of us already know those hard times, and they're a very bitter and hard thing, but we know God's faithfulness. Some of us don't yet know that individually, and I suspect we don't yet fully understand this corporately. But my style of ministry, I like to talk about it before it's happening instead of waiting until after it has. There is a reality that we as a body will be hurting corporately. It's only a matter of time. And friends, when we as a body hurt, our God will not leave us He will not forsake us. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us alone. He will be with us even to the end, individually and corporately, because our God is faithful. That's one of the great beauties of God's church is that the people are incredibly important to Him but we're replaceable. We're plug and play. I mean, think about the 15 years of our church growing, how many iterations of the session have we had? The session I first inherited, none of those guys are here. Grady and I serving by ourselves for two years, Lord faithful to us there. Adding guys in, some of those guys gone. Adding more guys in, the Lord faithfully caring. There'll be a day when I'm not here. It was almost last year. The Lord loves us, and he'll be faithful to us. The thing that I would ask is twofold, well, threefold. First, please start praying if you're not, and specifically pray for the Lord to bless this church with himself. Two, actively fight against this kind of prosperity gospel in your mind, to think that God's faithfulness is only seen and measured in people and dollars and numbers. Our target is faithfulness. But three, remember this when difficulty hits. It will, oh, it will. The Lord will not leave you. He'll never leave this church or forsake it. We could leave him in theory, but he'll never leave us. May it be that we as a body, even now, are reminded 
renewed in our intention and our vigor to be faithful in the gathering and perfecting of the saints by the word, sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We marvel at your mercy, a church that is as messy as this one has been for as long as this one has been messy. Oh, you have been so faithful. You've never left us and you've never forsaken us. And day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, you have shown in our weakness that you are strong. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sin. We're unfaithful in more ways than we can count, and we pray that you would forgive us, make us more and more into the image of Christ. He's the only one who can forgive sin. And Lord, we ask that you would prepare us for the hard times, that when they come, that we would not fall apart, but instead that we would rest upon the promises of God. You've never left us, and oh God, you never will. Thank you for Christ, and that in him all of your promises are yes and amen. Amen and amen.